for the next two weeks leading up to our anniversary service. We are going to, the next two weeks leading up to our anniversary service, we're going to turn seven. There you go. Okay. It's the new year, guys. This is a start the year, like, with some energy. Um, so what we're going to do for the next two weeks is we're going to look at some of the things that make us, like, make our heart beat at the Grove. And to know what our heart beats for, you have to look at, our story, your story, my story. And when I say the Grove, I don't mean an organization. I mean us, the people, the people of God. And our story is something like this. We were lost, wandering, orphans, and strangers to God and each other. And then God came into our world and he made his home here with us until we get there with him. And this is the story of us in God. And this is what we're looking at today. And then so if we ask if this is true, if God has made his home here with us, then how should we then live? And that's the question we're asking today. Um, we're going to be in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34. That's our primary verse. And then our secondary verse is Romans 15, 7. And uh, we're going to do Q&A, as always, so if you have questions throughout the sermon, there should be a number on the screen. You can text your questions there, and I'll interact with them. If I don't get to your question, I will answer you later today um, the best that I can. So here's our verses, our verse, Leviticus 19, verse 34. It says, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. And then in Romans 15, 7, it says, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. So our first point is lost strangers. And this theme runs all the way through Scripture. That we were strangers with God. We were lost, wandering, aliens, without a home. But then God came to make his home here with us until we then go home with him. Now, the line said we were strangers. So here is my question to you. If you're a Christian, are you a stranger to God? Are you a stranger in this world? And the answer is both yes and no. And so well, what does that mean? Well, in one sense, God has come to rescue us. And in doing that, he's restored our relationship with him. Like our sin, our, we have this thing in us where we're prone to run from God. And so he's come and he chased us down. But then he dealt with all the reasons why us and God aren't good. And he made us good with God again. So in that sense, we are no longer strangers to God. But in another sense, we have tasted just a little bit of the taste of what is to come. We've tasted the joy of heaven just a little bit. We've tasted the peace of heaven. We've tasted the wonders of heaven. And just the taste made us frantic, wanting to get to a place that we have never been to. But because, we, because the window has been opened up just a little bit and we've been able to look in, we can't help but long to be in this place with God that we have never been to that we know is ours one day. So in that sense, we're strangers here. In fact, the New Testament calls us citizens of heaven living on the earth. We are resident aliens. This is not our home. Yet in another sense, God will make it our home one day. So we live like this in between. 
And what that means then is not just the Christian, not just the skeptic, but everyone to walk the face of the earth feels like an outsider. And then we ask, how did it get that way? Well, the, the, the ancient story goes like this. There was Eden, and Eden was our home, and Eden was lost. It was lost because we wondered what life would be like without God. And then that wonder turned into action. And then we became strangers to God, and he became a stranger to us. Well, what really happened is we touched evil. And when we did, it bent us, it broke us, it twisted us, and it made us lost and it cursed us in this entire world. And now here is our situation. We are left wandering out in the wilderness, knowing that something deep inside of us says, this is not the place for me. Something deep inside of us says, I long for more and I want more and I need more. There's something in you that doesn't even know how to express what it is. You just know that there's more for you. And so you go searching. And then you face all these dangers. You face trials. And then it always seems like this snake of death is after you. And you're running from it. But another thing that we do is we like, well, gosh, that's pretty overwhelming. And so we put this bubble around ourselves. And we pretend like it's not after us. But every once in a while, the bubble gets poked. And when it gets poked, all of a sudden, all of our desires for Eden come rushing into us and we look around at the world and we say, something is wrong here. This is not my home and death is after me and I've got to get away from it. And we don't know how to get away from it. So we keep going back into this bubble. But then this longing that we have for home keeps popping this bubble and we keep looking around at this world and we keep being aware that we are made for so much more than this place. There's an ancient memory in us that is crying out for Eden. And the proof is that, well, first, the book of Hebrews says, as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. But the proof also is that death is inevitable for all of us. But it feels like it's wrong. It's one of the most natural things to happen to us, yet when we look at it, it looks horrible. Now, J.R.R. Tolkien, he is a literary scholar, uh, a great genius storyteller. And in an interview, he says every single great story is about one thing, death. He says the inevitability of death is what every great story is. And then in this interview, he quotes an atheist philosopher and I'm going to mess up her name, but I'm going to go for it. Her name is Simone de Beauvoir. I did it. Yeah. And thank you. Thank you. And so, so listen. So he, so J.R. Tolkien pulls out this piece of paper and he says, listen to this. And here's what she says. There's, now, remember, she's an atheist. There's no such thing as a natural death. Nothing that happens to a man is ever natural. Since his presence calls the world into question, all men must die. But for every man, his death is an accident. And even if he knows it and consents to it, an unjustifiable violation. 
Now, intellectually speaking, she has no right to say that death is a violation. Because if there is no God, then there is no such thing as right or wrong. Everything just happens the way that it's happening. In fact, uh, R- Richard Dawkins, the, the well-known atheist, he admits without God, he says, there is no objective morality. But this, this woman, Simone, she's saying death is wrong. Now, where is that coming from in her? Well, I would say to, to her that it's coming from her soul, that there's a deep longing and desire for Eden And Eden is crying out for this woman that she might open up her eyes and say, there is a God and he has made me for my home and I want to get there. Death is proof that we are strangers here. And the reason that this woman is crying out against death is because there's a verse in Ecclesiastes and it says, God has written eternity into our hearts, meaning we're made for it. And because we've been made for it deep in our soul, we're looking for it. And we're fighting against anything that looks like death that's around us. Every breath, every longing. It's our instinctual effort to rid ourselves from the grip of death that is upon us. If there is no God, then this should feel like home. But we rebel against death. We fight it. And God, coming into the world is the absolute only solution to death. Because what happens is the snake of death has swallowed us up. And what our faith tells us is that Christ has come into the snake of death after us and he's grabbed it by the end of its tail and he pulled it inside out. So it can't hold us, can't claim us anymore. The Bible is the true story of the death of death. Now, how did God do this? Well, let's go back. So the story starts with this guy named Abraham. And God says to Abraham, go to the land that I'm going to show you. Go to your home. And Abraham's like, where? And then God says, go. All right, so we got to go find this home. And immediately, after a few generations, they're in Egypt and they're slaves. This doesn't feel like home. And then from Egypt, they're set into the wilderness. And they're like, this doesn't feel like home. And then finally, they get to the promised land. And they're like, yay, we got here. And then they look around they say, wait, this doesn't feel like home either. But it was supposed to. Now look, watch, watch the pattern. Salvation goes into slavery and then out. Into the wilderness and then out into the promised land. But yet here was the problem in the Old Testament for God's people. They said, we know that we are made for more than this. And God agrees with them. As it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And yet, well, they weren't patient. And they rebelled against God again. And in doing that, they ran right back into death. It's like we can't help it. We're rebels to everything. It's like the world, nope, this is not my home. All right, God says, well, come be with me. All right, nope, this isn't it either. And we just keep rebelling from rebellion to rebellion over and over and over again. Why do you think God named his people Israel? The name Israel literally means wrestles with God. We wrestle with everything. Never satisfied. Why? We're made for more. This is the hope. This is the promise. And and so the question is, 
what, like, is there anything that can be done about this? Or are we destined to keep rebelling against God and keep running right into the pit of hell? There's a, this viral video that keeps going around of the sheep that is stuck in this like, this like narrow ditch and it's like hanging at the edges. And, and someone comes out and gets the sheep out and the sheep goes running and jumps right back into the ditch. This is exactly what we keep doing with God. So the question is, what will he do? Are, are, is this going to be forever for us? Well, let's look. Second point. One cold night, shepherds were in a field and then stood before them an army of angels. And they said, on this night, a savior has come to deal with the sins of the world and crush the snake of death. So God, the story is that God made a way, a road for us to take back to him. The road was too hard, so he came to us. Um, there's a story about um, a, a Russian cosmonaut, a Russian astronaut. Um, I don't know how many years ago. They went up into space, and they came back. The astronaut came back and mockingly said, I went up to the heavens, and I did not meet God there. He is not there. So C.S. Lewis, in his brilliance, responds to this, and he says something like, he responded and he said, this is like Hamlet. You know who Hamlet is? Hamlet is the character in a play. So he says, this is like Hamlet going to the attic of his castle looking for Shakespeare. Shakespeare is the writer of Hamlet. And what he's saying is, if there is a God, we wouldn't know him by looking around at the empirical evidence. We wouldn't know him by measuring. We couldn't put him in a test tube and say, there he is. In fact, if we're going to know him, we have to know him in such a way like the author has written himself into the story that he is writing. And anything we know about him, we know it not because we got to him, but because he let us know by writing himself in the story or writing about him. So this is super cool. So a woman named Dorothy Sayers, she's a, she's a writer, and she had this character that she kept writing about, Lord Peter Whimsey. And as she kept writing about him, he, he was a detective and he was single. And she kept writing about him and eventually she began to fall in love with him. And he was going through pain and struggle. And so to do something about this, she wrote herself into the story. At least that's what people think. And by writing herself in, she entered into the adventures with Lord Peter Whimsey. They got married. And, and what people say is that she looked at his pain, she looked at his struggle, she loved him, she came for him by writing herself in. This is exactly what God does with us to an infinitely greater degree, infinitely greater. Because he saw the road that we kept going down, this road of struggle, this road of pain, and he didn't avoid it. He didn't scream from up above, come on, take that way or take this way. He saw we were too stubborn to listen to him. So he rode himself into the story and he followed our path right into suffering, right into death, right into hell, right into loss, right into heartbreak. And he felt absolutely everything that we feel, even to an infinitely greater degree than we do. He felt it all. And then he went up to the cross and he was he, he there. He held on to all the sins, so all this road that you have taken, 
in this road where you have collected all of these sins in your life that are hanging on you and bearing you down, is all this heartbreak that you have felt through this life that's pulling at you, he took all of it and he put it all on his shoulders and he went up to the cross and was crucified there. And at that moment, he was alienated from the Father. At that moment, it says he was cut off, crucified outside the city gates, which means that inside the city is the home of God, outside is the wilderness. Outside is him being a stranger, and he dies there. So the gates of heaven might open up to us, and we might go running in to the city of joy and to the city of peace. This is his story to us. He became intimate with death, sin, and the curse, so he might be able to be intimate with us. Beautiful story. The astronaut did not find God up there because that is not where you meet him. You don't meet God in his world. We can't get to his world. He comes into our world and carries us into his world. And not just that. It's not just that we meet him here. It's that we meet him at the lowest of lows. We meet him in the dirt, in the dust, in our pain, in our struggle, in our sin. And he's not up at the top of the mountain cheering us on. He's there in the dirt and he's lifting us up and he's carrying us. And the only way for him to get deep down where we are is to wear our sin. The only way for him to get down where we are is to wear death and let it hold him, let it swallow him up so he could be with us and then turn death inside out. The sheep that we are that keep running back into the pit of death and hell, he jumped into the pit and by his love he filled that pit up. Now we can no longer fall in because the pit has been covered up with his love and so we can dance over the grave that once held us. On top, our feet are dancing on the top of his love. On the top of his love, we run. On the top of his love, we live our life. On the top of his love, we love the people around us. On the top of his love, we enjoy this world. And on the top of this love, we have peace when everything says we shouldn't because we always know that the ground that we are on, this foundation is the foundation of the love of God through the death and the resurrection of Christ. That's what we stand upon. You have nothing to fear because your feet are dancing upon love of God who is always with you to the end of the age. Every sin that you have in your life, just look down at the foundation you stand upon. It's wiped clean. The love of God is here holding you up, lifting you up to the heavens. And you know that most when you're at your lowest. It's always there. I had the privilege of, of meeting um, this, this guy who was an executive pastor at this church in Manhattan. Um, he basically was the executive pastor of like m my hero pastor, my hero preacher. And I got to sit down with him and he told me, David, we've seen a lot of people skeptical of Christianity come to faith. He said, but I don't think we've ever seen anybody come to faith without first suffering without first in the middle of struggle and pain and loss and failure. Which means that that's where you meet God. You're not looking at pain and trying to avoid it, at least not if you wanna meet God. You're looking at pain and you're entering in because inside of it, that's where you meet the Christ. 
and you'll never understand him until you meet him there. Because you're never going to see him bloody until you see him there. You're never going to see him wearing your own bruises until you see him there. So you enter in. It's going to be hard, yes, but he's there. So you go in. And then you can dance over the grave. And every single thing that I have said leading up to this point is so that you might understand the main point of the text that I read. You were strangers. Then it says, open the doors. Welcome the stranger as a native among you. Which means this. We were strangers to the house of God. And yet by the work of Christ, his body was ripped open. And in doing that, he became the door that we pass through into life, into our home with God. And we walk through, and as we walk through now in this church and in your heart and in your home, you have your doors wide open to those who are outside, who have not yet seen the love of God that is found in our suffering and our pain, who comes and meets us there. So you open the door of your heart. You welcome the stranger as a native, for you once were a stranger. And this is, an, this is interesting that God says this to his people because it's very, God's people took very seriously the law of God. They did not want it to be tainted. They didn't want it to be bent. And so they would protect themselves. They build up these walls so that the ways of the world would not infect them. But yet the command of God is to open the doors and keep your faith, keep the ways of God, but let people come in who believe differently than you, who think differently than you, and love them as you love yourself. Welcome them. This is, this is a calling to let people belong before they believe. And it's a tension because we're going to be wrestling with this. But it's a place where it's a trust that this beautiful truth of Christianity, because we trust that it's true, we believe it will rise to the top. Let it be tested. It will be way more beautiful than you even know. Test it. See. And you know, evangelism in the Old Testament, it was done by this. Let the nation see how beautiful the law of God is. And let the nation see how beautiful it is to worship God. Let them see and come in and worship God because of how beautiful it is. In the New Testament, evangelism turns into we're going to go out and then come back in. And then in Romans, that Romans 15, 7, it says, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. And the, the Greek word for welcome is proslumbano, which means to grasp Take hold of and pull in or by the, by the neck. It's, this, it's the arm of friendship around someone that you're bringing in through the doors to say, look, this is our God. And this is what he's done. He's come into the dirt. He's come into the dust. He's come for us. He didn't think twice about it. In fact, it was his plan all along. And then it's a welcome in to say, look around and take a look at the people of God. Say, we're not perfect, far from it. 
In fact, we're very quick to admit we're hypocrites. We're very quick to admit we don't have it all together. We're very quick to also admit we have a gracious Savior who we love, who will love us no matter what, and has opened the doors, and his body's been ripped open so we can be with him forever. And so that means this. Evangelism is a communal endeavor. And it doesn't mean that it's a project. You don't make people a project. You just be a person. And you know what a person does? A person is vulnerable. A person that says, this is my hope. This is my fear. This is who I am. Look at my soul. I'm terrified of this, but I have hope in this. And I have faith in this God who has come and fought for me. In a world that is polarized, that demands, if you're going to be part of a group, you must believe what that group believes. The church comes along and says, come in, belong before you believe. Because we have such a compelling truth that it takes care of itself. All we've got to do is speak it. All we've got to do is act it out. Everything else takes care of itself. And here... Here is what it is. And I'm not talking about this room. I mean, it is this room, but it's so much more than that. It's like when we're gathered together as people, what we're doing is we're becoming a city on a hill. We're becoming this door that people can walk into and then look around. And as they look out the windows, they're able to look in and look at what the gospel produces, what heaven could look like here on the earth. It's a picture of joy. Surrounded by sorrow. It's a picture of peace when we're haunted by anxiety. It's a picture of people who are acting out the drama that they are in. What does that mean? It means we have looked at our Savior and we have seen what he has done. And we say, I'm going to do that very thing. Not to prove that I'm in not to prove to him that I belong, but because I already belong and I'm following him to the ends of the earth and I have seen him go to the ends of the earth seeking the outsiders, seeking the misfits, seeking the strangers and seeking those who are lost and I'm following him and so I follow him to the same places that he goes. And I look at the way that he is and I see that he has stepped into my suffering, stepped into my pain, stepped into my loss, stepped into my sin, stepped into everything so he can have me and so I look around at people and I see them and I say, ah, I, 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 I understand your pain because it's my pain. The same way he bore our burdens, we look at the burdens of others and we bear them. Now you can only handle so much. That's why it's a communal endeavor. And then you look at him who suffered and died and you can make sacrifices now for others because you're following your king and he's giving you the power to do it. And you see, he has stepped into death, rose, pulled death inside out. He's covered the grave, and you've got a story to tell. And if you tell that story, and people walk through that door, you now have more people to dance with over the pit that has been covered up by the love of God. So we need to learn how to dance better. And then welcome other people to dance with us. Because we have a Savior who has done everything so we might dance and dance well. And I'm talking about living your life well. 
Let's pray. Uh, Father, show us yet a greater way to live. A way that is a joyful response to all that you have done for us. So we might know what it means to dance and live fully alive. Dancing upon the filled in grave of your love. So for you, we now fight because you fought for us. For you, we now love because you loved us. We love the world around us. We pray for the world. And we want to see the world know how great you are. And we want to be a place where believers and skeptics can talk about faith and doubt and have honest wrestling. And you got to help us do that, God, because our pride keeps getting in the way. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast on your favorite podcast provider. Follow our social media at The Grove Church Official and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.